Jesus Christ made some very strong and powerful statements against people who violated children. Jesus was very affectionate towards kids. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. My name is Rod Hembry. I'm Janice. And this is Bible Discovery TV, Discovering the Bible. It is a great one. We're going to talk about this from Luke chapter 17 in about two minutes. So get ready for that. Meantime, Corey and Reiner here. Corey? I'm going to be taking a look at Jesus' prediction of the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. Ryan? Well, there's a lot of prophecies in the Old Testament regarding the Messiah, Jesus, but it might surprise you to know that at least two of these prophecies pinpoint when he was going to step into history. Very interesting. And uh, this is something important, Janice. They're coming up in about uh, 15 minutes time, but what are you doing? Today, my segment's called Increase My Faith. All right, so get the Bible guide out. Let's study what God is saying to us. Open it up. Luke 17, 1 through 10. Then he said to the disciples, It is impossible that no offenses should come, but woe to him through whom they do come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea, than that he should offend one of these little ones. Take heed to yourselves. If your brother sins against you, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in a day, and seven times in a day returns to you saying, I repent, you shall forgive him. And the apostles said to the Lord, Increase our faith. So the Lord said, If you have faith as a mustard seed, you can say to this mulberry tree, Be pulled up by the roots and be planted in the sea, and it would obey you. And which of you, having a servant plowing or tending sheep, will say to him when he has come in from the field, Come at once and sit down to eat? But will he not rather say to him, Prepare something for my supper, and gird yourself, and serve me till I have eaten and drunk, and afterward you will eat and drink? Does he thank that servant, because he did the things that were commanded him? I think not. So likewise you, when you have done all those things which you are commanded, say, We are unprofitable servants. We have done what was our duty to do. Luke chapter 17, verses 1 through 10. Luke chapter 17, 18 and 19 tell us much about what Jesus continues to do. Now, Luke is a, a doctor and he's a Gentile writer. Now, it's very easy to have life objectives that are wrong. Our natural inclinations are so often against the commands of God. Our own human natures team up with our culture and with voices and the lives of people around us to, to shape how we live and what we prioritize, social media. When we come to Christ, though, we need to change. We're confronted with the truth of God's reality of our sins, his forgiveness, and our need to follow him. God interrupts us with his truth, just as he interrupted history with the life, mission, and death of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. On the other side of our 
confrontation with Christ, assuming that we have repented, confessed our sins, and asked forgiveness of those sins, we are new creations. We now have an obligation, a duty to follow Christ, to learn from him, and to follow God's words with our whole hearts, no longer following our own natural inclinations or cultures or surroundings, but but choosing a better way, choosing the way of God. Now, this is how a Christian is supposed to live. The word Christian means Christ-like or following Christ. It's uh, the modern-day translation of the ancient times. They called it the way. And so this is what we need to do. Very, very important. As we study today, take your Bible guide out and go to today's message. Now, it's important for you to understand that if you don't have a Bible guide, you can call us or write to us and we'll send you one. Or you can go to BibleDiscoveryTV.com. And at BibleDiscoveryTV.com, click on the page and it will take you to a place where you can order it exactly how we have it printed. It also gives you an opportunity to donate. And let me say thank you for your donations. They're very important right now. And it's very good that people are still faithful to God and continue to give to his message and his work. Today, faith and duty. Faith and duty. <laughs> this is a good one, okay? Luke chapter 17. Father, help us today, Lord. I, you know, we need to be, we need to pay attention to duty here. We need to pay attention to faith because faith has changed us. It's changed our lives, but we need to respond and motivate ourselves to live for you. In the name of Jesus Christ, I pray that you would touch people and touch me with this today. And we said together, amen and amen. Now, Luke 17 is very interesting because it speaks about something that we need to talk about with Jesus talking to his disciples. Whenever Jesus talks to his disciples, he's talking to us. So listen carefully to what the Holy Spirit says. He said, then he said to the disciples, that's us, it is impossible that no offenses should come, but woe to him through whom they do come. Woe to him through whom they do come. In fact, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea than that he should offend one of these little ones. Fascinating. Jesus made a strong statement about offenses against the children. Now, beloved, we must recognize the deep value and love of children that God has. Listen carefully. There's a lot of people who are involved in human trafficking. Absolutely preposterous. It is a horrible thing originated by sin. There is absolutely no exception. There should be no human trafficking. But there is. And one of the biggest countries in the world as a customer is the United States of America. Beloved, we need to pray and ask God, Father, in Jesus' name, I pray that you would touch people and help them to see that this is wrong and help them to understand they can't continue doing it. They've got to stop doing it because your children are offended. In the name of Jesus Christ. And we said together, amen. 
Notice how much value God places on a child. Also, very important, we need to pay attention because how we're arguing about our kids' rights and all of that in today's world. Children are important, but God gives the parents responsibility for the children. Very interesting. All right, Luke chapter 17, verse 3. Take heed to yourselves. If your brother sins against you, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in a day and seven times in the day returns to you, saying, I repent, you should forgive him. Now, this is very important. Jesus commands that we forgive those who sin against us. Now, oftentimes we would rather get even than to forgive. That is wrong. We need to do the same thing that God did for us. We need to forgive. I remember one guy said to me, well, Rod, you know, I get even. I don't get forgiveness. I get even. And I said, well, that's great. Too bad it's not biblical. What? He said, it's not biblical. And we have to understand that we need to forgive. And that's hard for some of us. I mean, today we've got people, things have happened to them 30 years ago or 20 years ago, and they're coming back and leveling the field. Let me tell you something. God works with forgiveness and he teaches us his Holy Spirit inside of us helps us because we can't do it ourselves, but his Holy Spirit will help us inside of us. So that's what we need to remember. Now, Luke chapter 17, verse five, and the, uh, the apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. So the Lord said, if you have faith as a mustard seed, you can say to this mulberry tree, be pulled up by the roots and be planted in the sea, and it will obey you. And which of you, having a servant plowing or tending sheep, will say to him, when he has come from the field, come at once and sit down and eat? But will he not rather say to him, prepare something for my supper and gird yourself and serve me till I have eaten and then drunk and afterwards you will eat and drink? Does he thank that servant because he did the things that were commanded him? I think not. So likewise, you, when you have done all those things, which you are commanded, say, we are unprofitable servants. We have done what our duty told us to do. And that brings me to this point. Jesus said that it is not the amount of faith we have, but it's that we have faith. Faith in God is the way we should live and define our life with him. Faith in God is the way we should live and define our life in him. Beloved, we need to have faith. How much faith do you need? You need faith as a mountain? No, you need faith as a mustard seed. That's all you need. And beloved, we need to pray. God, help us to focus on who you are and how you have changed my life. And I will believe. Help me, Lord, in Jesus' name. We celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. When you clap and when you get excited, you are celebrating life. Do you understand that? Jesus Christ gave us life. But he promised that the Holy Spirit would be sent.
All right, so my segment today documents two specific messianic prophecies in the Old Testament. Now, there are a lot of prophecies in the Bible describing and predicting what the Messiah's life and mission would look like. But these two we're going to talk about today actually pinpoint a specific time in history that the Messiah had to come. Check it out. While there are hundreds of prophecies in the Bible describing the Messiah's life and mission, there are at least two that predict when he would arrive. The most well-known about of these prophecies is the so-called 70 weeks prophecy in Daniel 9. This was given to Daniel by the angel Gabriel at a time when Jerusalem and its temple was in ruins and the Israelites were exiles in Babylon. One of the things that makes this passage so important is that it gives a time frame that has clear beginning and ending points. According to verses 25 and 26, the Messiah will come sometime after a decree is issued to rebuild Jerusalem. When he does arrive, he will be cut off and have nothing. And this will happen sometime before the rebuilt Jerusalem and temple are destroyed for a second time. This limits the time frame for the Messiah's arrival between 444 BC, when Artaxerxes gave this decree, and 70 AD, when Jerusalem and the temple were destroyed once again. But what's so stunning about this prophecy is that it seems to narrow this window of time down even more, even down to a specific day, which just so happened to be the moment in history when Jesus of Nazareth made his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. While not all accept this interpretation, at the very least, Daniel provides us a time frame with a clear beginning, 444 BC and end, AD 70. Yet it seems that another biblical passage reduces this 500-year window of time even further. Genesis 49.10 declares that the scepter will not pass from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until Shiloh comes. According to several rabbis and scholars, Shiloh is a clear reference to the Messiah, but can also be translated as the one to whom it belongs. And the scepter refers to Judah's tribal identity and judicial authority. And judicial authority is the right to administer and enforce Torah law upon Jews living in Judah, including the right to judge capital cases and apply capital punishment. Based upon this understanding, Genesis 49.10 can be paraphrased this way. Tribal identity and judicial authority will not cease from Judah until the Messiah, the one to whom these legitimately belong, comes. History seems to indicate that Judah lost this authority sometime between 6 BC and AD 30. Significantly, according to the rabbis of the Talmud, they lost it in AD 30, the exact time Jesus' ministry began. And, as with Daniel's prophecy, since the temple, along with the genealogical records, were destroyed in AD 70, this was the absolute latest that the Messiah could come. So, Genesis 49.10 would appear to limit the Messiah's arrival between AD 30 and 70. A rabbi named Rachman confirmed this as he lamented, Woe unto us, for the scepter has departed from Judah, and the Messiah has not come. Of course, the Messiah, Yeshua, Jesus, did come. But his people rejected him and cut him off, just as Daniel had predicted. Nevertheless, the day is coming when they will see the one whom they pierced and recognize him as their Messiah. So a lot of us know about Daniel's 70 weeks prophecy in Daniel chapter 9, but Genesis chapter 49 verse 10 also seems to narrow down the window of time in which the Messiah had to come, which was at the maximum between 6 BC 
and AD 70, since that's around the time that the scepter departed from Judah. But as I said in the segment, based on the Talmud, this window is even smaller, from AD 30 to 70. And AD 30 is a really interesting date because this was right around the time that Jesus began his earthly ministry. So Genesis 49.10, Daniel 9, and the Talmud all point to a clear time in history when the Messiah had to arrive. And he certainly did arrive. Jesus came exactly when he was supposed to, and he's going to come again exactly when he's supposed to. He's going to come quickly, and we need to, to remember that, and we need to invite Jesus into our heart and our life. And so I would encourage you to do that. If you haven't done that, you simply pray and ask him to come into your heart and be the Lord of your life and forgive you of your sin. That's very, very important. Also, I just want to remind you that on the 21st of this month, coming up in a week, we're going to be live in Brampton, Ontario at Faith Gospel Tabernacle uh, on Salvation Road uh, off Beauvert there. It's really, really important. We'd like to meet you. We're all going to have presentations we're going to do. Uh, you're going to have some questions that mm -hmm. we're going to do. It's going to be good, and we'll have coffee together, and we'll talk with each other. It'll be great to see you from 1 till 5.30. So go to our website and register right away and make sure that you have time to come and see us because we'd love to see you. Uh, that's in Brampton, Ontario, Canada. Okay, Corey. All right. Well, many of the Gospels, most of the Gospels actually record Jesus giving prophecies about the destruction of Jerusalem and specifically the destruction of the temple, which would have seemed rather impossible to the people of that day. And we, and we see this reaction uh, of, of, you know, disbelief that this could ever happen uh, from the crowds that Jesus is preaching to and even from the disciples uh, of Jesus who speak to him more personally. But we see it here again in Luke chapter 21, verses. 20 to 24, talking about this destruction. So uh, we know historically that the destruction of Jerusalem and Judah occurred in AD 70 by the Roman military. But I want to take a look at the remains that have been found from the Temple Mount, the remains from this temple that Jesus, uh, you know, interacted with. Take a look. The last Jewish temple to stand on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem was destroyed in AD 70 by the Roman military responding to a rebellion of the people. The temple and temple complex that was destroyed was the one that features on the pages of the New Testament. Herod the Great had begun renovations to it around 19 BC, and according to the stories that have passed down through history, it was Herod's crowning achievement unrivaled in beauty. Today, we have more than stories. In 2016, archaeologists working with the Temple Mount Sifting Project announced that they had reconstructed colorful tile work that once paved the floor of the temple complex. In Opus Sectile style, these geometrically arranged tiles utilized imported stones of varying types and color, and often incorporated what has become known as Herod's Triangle, a triangle Herod used as a sort of style signature. First century historian Josephus claimed that the temple complex's open court was from end to end variegated with paving of all manner of stones. A small sundial was also recovered in 1972 during excavations just south of the Temple Mount. The sundial was discovered in ancient debris from the destruction of the temple. It features a carved menorah on its back and is computed to tell time in Jerusalem. The back also has two indentations that tell historians it was mounted somewhere in the temple complex to keep its time-telling accurate. 
Another key find from the remains of the Jerusalem temple still retain its warning. Two copies of the temple's Gentile boundary signs have been found. In 1871 and 1935, the stones were found in secondary use and still boast their Greek inscriptions warning Gentiles to go no further. The Jewish Mishnah tells of a three-foot-high wall that was built in Herod's temple complex marking a sacred area that Gentiles were not allowed to breach. The historian Josephus adds that there were warnings posted along the wall, two of which, no doubt, have now been found. I think it's always really exciting to be able to see physical artifacts that come from the time period of Jesus. It really illuminates the text in a different way. And, you know, there's no exception here with, you know, floor tiles left over from Herod's temple and uh, the, the different areas that are still, you know, that have still remained. The, the little pieces, little glimpses into the first century temple that we can get, I think, is really, really illuminating. Yeah, it really is. It's fascinating. And there's a lot of work that's going to be done on the temple uh, in the future. So I'm just, that's my personal opinion. <laughs> yeah. But I, I, I'm just fascinated by the Temple Institute. But that's another story for another day. Okay, Janice. Yes. Well, I titled this one, Increase My Faith, uh, because we're reading in Luke chapter 17. And Jesus is talking to his disciples about warning them about offenses. He's saying, you know, if your brother sins against you, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And he's saying, if when that person comes and repents, you have to forgive him every time. And the apostles say to the Lord, increase our faith. And then Jesus goes into this explanation about having faith the size of a mustard seed and you'll be able to say anything and, and it will happen. And it's, it's, it's just a really fascinating portion of scripture. And he talks about someone having a servant. And if the servant comes in and does what he's supposed to be doing, and uh, you know, you're not going to say, oh, well, you go and sit down and, and you have your supper first and I'll take care of myself. It, it's the order of which it happens. The servant is to, to be able to do what he is supposed to be doing. And he's not going to get any special accreditation for doing what he's supposed to be doing because that's what he's supposed to be doing. And so likewise, the same way as Jesus is describing this, we as Jesus' disciples, we don't do anything to earn our salvation. Christ has already paid that cost. We are not serving God because we want to be elevated to some different class, a higher class than someone else, or to get the most gold stars in a row. When we come to be followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, we begin to serve him because he is our Lord. He has given his life for ours. He does not serve us. And I think that that needs to be said because sometimes I think we like to think of God as that genie in a bottle that I come to you every day and here's the things that I want and I expect you to do them. And if it doesn't happen, well, then I'll decide whether I'm going to follow you or not. It is not that at all. It is coming to recognize that God's Son, Jesus Christ, came to give His life. He shed His blood on that cross. We 
should take that punishment, but he took it upon himself. And so when we make that distinction, when we recognize that Jesus has done this for us and we can receive forgiveness from our sin and receive the gift of eternal life, then we commit to follow him. When we commit to follow him, we give up everything. We give up our rights to follow him and he becomes our Lord. And we serve him because he came as an example and served us. And that's what we have to do to him by loving each other, by forgiving. That's why I'm sure the apostle said, oh boy, increase my faith because how am I ever going to do that? Truth is we can't. We can't on our own. We have to have the strength of the Lord Jesus in us in order to do the things that he has called us to do. And that's what's so amazing. In serving the Lord Jesus Christ, it is quite the journey. And we increase our faith because we learn who God is as we follow him. You know, when when you give your heart to the Lord right away, there's not this mind meld that happens and all of a sudden you know everything or that you're a perfect person doesn't happen. It's a journey. We're a work in progress, a work in progress. But what a work, because it's God who does the work when we allow him to do that in our lives. What a wonderful thing that that is. So I would really encourage you today, if you've never thought about God, if you've never taken the Lord Jesus as your Lord, if you haven't thought about it, would you do that today? Just consider that today. Because as you follow him, as you learn about him, you will increase your faith and it will be your love for him that wants to serve him, that wants to follow him and do his commands. October 21st. It's coming up quickly and I want to remind you that we're going to be there on the weekend at Faith Gospel Tabernacle Saturday and that is from 1 till 5.30 p.m. Why not join us? We'll be live. We'd love to see you in Brampton, Ontario, Canada. Go to our website and register. It doesn't cost anything, but we'd love to see you and talk to you. We just need to know how much coffee to make. So make sure that you do that. Today we pray, Father, forgive me of my sins. And help me to follow you, even though it's hard. In Jesus' name.